0: Hello, everybody and welcome back to the meeting room uh you've got myself today unfortunately jed could not make it but i've got tim here with me welcome tim
1: hey very excited for this one
0: uh yeah I, this is actually probably one of the podcasts i've most been looking forward to uh today we've got the so-called brand father of hollywood rohan oza rohan welcome to the podcast thank you for taking the time to speak to us
2: yeah thanks for having me i mean you know Oh, strong arm by a number of your family members. uh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's fantastic to get to speak to you. So I think the way we'll start off this podcast is talking about your upbringing and kind of where you came from. You are a University of Nottingham alumni, something we're very proud of. Um, Well, let's bring it back a bit further. So you were born in Zambia and then you went to school in the UK at Harrow and then University of Nottingham. Can you talk to us a bit about that and kind of how that's, that's, that's shaped the way you are now?
2: Sure. Um, so part of the thing is I have a very you know, multicultural background, culturally I'm Indian, but I was born and raised in Zambia. So I have a, a lot of the sort of Southern African roots to me. Um, and then I studied in the UK from a young age, so I'm British as well. So I have all the British stuff flowing for me. So I'm British Asian, you'd call it, but then with the African roots. And now after twenty odd years, I'm very American. And I am American. So um, for those who are in America that still think I have a British accent, and for you guys you think I've completely lost it. So um, but what that what's done that's done for me is kind of I've had to adapt to different environments. Uh, at all turns, right? So you go to boarding school at the age of nine, you got to adapt uh, and then uni and then back doing uh, you know uh, London to work for Mars M& Ms and then from there you come, I came to the states, did my MBA. So I was having to adapt to my environments all the time. Uh, and I think part of that has helped me in some capacity as I try and navigate sort of the world of venture capital and private equity that I do now, Because every company, every founder, every scenario is different. So you have to almost be a chameleon in terms of how you stay true to yourself, but how do you adapt to the company and what it's doing and how to help them is not a one size fits all. So that background definitely has enabled me to navigate the States in a way that sometimes not always easy to do.
1: So you mentioned then that you started off as a manufacturing manager at Mars. Yes. Was it M&M?
2: Well, it was Mars M&Ms, but I worked on Snickers, Bounty, and Twix. I actually never made the M&Ms. M&Ms were never really huge in, in England. The biggest one was Mars Bar. was one. So I did Mars Bar and then Twix, Snickers, and, and Bounty.
1: So you were recruited to be the youngest manager. How did you get to that position? And did you feel that you were adequately prepared to take on the reign at such a young age?
2: Yeah, good question. I didn't run Snickers the brand. I run the manufacturing line for Snickers. And, but uh, I, I just, it, it, the nature of graduating early from Nottingham meant that I was 20 by the time I got the job, which was young. And I think that was part of the problem is I kind of lacked the maturity. Um, I, I could do the job fine, but I think sometimes that age, you need a little more coaching um, because there's some nuances to, you know, I'm, I was leading people twice my age. Now, a lot of the people on the line were Asian. So um, they actually liked the fact because it was rare at that time to see a brown face in management. So that part they liked. So I got a degree of respect and I'm good with people. But the actual, you know, when you're that young, you need a little more mentorship. Let's put it that way. So my learning was, or would be for anybody else, is if you get in a company early, always try and seek out mentors because they can help you navigate stuff that, you won't see landmines, pitfalls, learnings, etc.
0: Yeah, so I think now clearly you are not manufacturing focused. It's not how you made your career, and so one of the things that I think, ironically, of, career
2: is all in brands that have to be manufactured. Yes, that's the funny thing. Manufacturing, correct. Um,
0: so I think one thing that students like us challenge, uh, figure as a challenge is when we think that we are one thing or we go into one thing. And realise this is not for us, and we actually are not that good at it. How did you take that time constructively and manage to actually develop yourself to then put you in a better place to succeed in what you wanted to do, which I presume is marketing?
2: Yeah, it's less. It's actually, it's become it's become building brands of tomorrow. That's what it's become. Yeah. Um. What did I do? I pivoted. So I did an MBA, and I pivoted into what I was passionate about. So what my two strengths are branding and marketing and corporate strategy, which are the two areas that I, because it's not just about marketing. I mean, where a company goes and how you direct a company is very much about strategy of which marketing is a big element, but not the only element. So sales, route to market, uh, product innovation, uh, cost of goods, margin manufacturing, all that stuff is is critical in basically in my successes and failures. And so I pivoted and did an MBA, which allowed me to pick the area that I was passionate about, which was marketing and branding and corporate strategy. So then when I went to Coca-Cola, I went squarely into brand management, which is kind of what I was good at.
0: Interesting. Okay. And actually, let's talk a little bit about that MBA, University of Michigan. Can you tell us a bit why, bit of a reason as to why you chose firstly to go to the US, to go to Michigan, and kind of move yourself really away from your comfort zone again, because you were... Zambia to UK, UK for a long time, and then moved to the US.
2: So, I'm old, okay. So, as we both established, um, <laughs> I'm your parents' age, or sure your dad is older than me, but I look a lot younger than him. Uh, <laughs> okay. But, but I think the the at that time, maybe still today, probably the US had the reputation for having the best business schools in the world. Right? There were a few in Europe for sure, but for some reason, I was not attracted. I love the UK, but I wasn't attracted to going to work in Germany, for example, you know, or in France. Like, so it's a great European business schools, but I wasn't feeling that. And I, there was something about America that drew me in. So I looked at the top business schools in America. Um, having done engineering, I um, I couldn't write very well. So when it came to applying to business schools you have to write essays and my essays were bloody awful. So um, Harvard and Stanford just wrote me off before the interview. And then once I got interviews, then I, I was able to get into school. So Michigan was great. Cause I was one of the top 10 schools in the country. They offered me a scholarship, which was great. Cause you can save some money. And um, I really liked the program and the campus and so on and so forth. But to be fair, I visited in summer, no one told me about December. January,
0: <laughs>
2: so, you know, it's almost like, the Mormons who set up camp in Utah and then suddenly that was in summer and then winter hit I'm like what the hell is going on here if you think british are bad? <laughs> but anyway it was an incredible experience but i wanted to come to the states for an mba and it all worked out because michigan allowed me to platform to coca-cola coca-cola allowed me to platform the vitamin water and the rest is history as they say
0: interesting so i think one thing that we can talk about is obviously the benefit of your grad school and you got from uh, michigan to um coca-cola and so one thing I think a lot of our, our listeners are interested in, they may be grads from undergraduate, but some are going to do a master's. How did you leverage any connections or things like that to actually land a role in such a big company like Coca-Cola from Michigan after doing an MBA there? Is what? How did you make that happen?
2: Well, that's one of the reasons I chose mission again. One of the things you have to look at is why the hell are you doing a master's, right? There's going to be a reason. Some people just like to stay in school and keep graduating and adding titles to their names, but if you want to have a game plan, it's like, okay, I'm doing a master's and why, and what is that master's going to do for me? That's first of all. For me, I looked at where the top uh, companies, branding companies were recruiting. Michigan was on that list. So Coke, Pepsi, General Mills, Unilever, all the big brand names that ironically today I compete with, all um, came recruiting Michigan. So I felt that, okay, there's a base here that I can go with. And so that that made a big difference. And so Coke was my favorite just because I've grown up. It's To me, it's the most iconic brand in the world, like consumer brand. And so I'm like, even though the product's horrible for you, uh, the brand is amazing. So the question is, how do you learn from that? So that's why I chose Michigan. And that's why whoever's doing a master's, to your point, should figure out where they're going and what's that going to benefit them. So is it a geographical thing? Is it I want to work in, California. And so I choose you know, UCLA or California school. Do I want to work in, in in France and I choose you know French business school or European business school where French companies recruit from, right? Or do I want to do my own thing and I'm choosing a university that has a very strong entrepreneurial, no one goes to recruit there, but they really spit out a lot of entrepreneurs and the network of entrepreneurs that can then help guide you is powerful. Right. So Michigan also has one of the biggest alumni bases in, in the world. So the advantage of wherever you go, you, the phrase called a Michigan man. So wherever you go, you'll you'll find a Michigan man or woman that connects you in some field, whether it's, you know, getting into a country club in Los Angeles or whether it's getting in meeting a hedge fund guy in Miami or whatever the case may be, Michigan has a very strong one. And because of the passion for the school, and the sports, America's sports is very big, and Michigan is a big sports program, you immediately bond, whether it's on football, basketball, whining about the season, but you bond on some sort of school pride.
1: So once you finish your MBA, you get your big move to Coke. Yeah. How did you find the adjustment going from an MBA into one of the biggest brands and organizations in the world? It was very difficult.
2: I'll tell you why. Because I came from England, so I understood uh, one thing when you build brands is you need to understand the nature of pop culture within the country in which you're growing the brand. And depending what brand you're in, if you're managing an old, stodgy brand, it's fine. But if you're trying to manage brands that are younger and more vibrant, then you need to have an understanding of the fabric of the country you're dealing with. And I had that in the UK, right? There's, there's nuances to being British in terms of food, culture, music, etc. cetera. When you come to the United States, and it's very different. So hip-hop, for example, is something I didn't even understand. Although arguably now I'm supposed to be, you know, a cultural expert on <laughs> articles that have been written. And I think 50 probably helped educate me on that. But, um, but I think that I had to learn pop culture in America. So I became a student of the game. Um. I actually thought Marilyn Manson was a woman back then. Yeah, people are so confused. But um, a, lot, a lot of my friends are laughing at me when I thought Marilyn Manson was a woman. And so then I realized, you know what, you've got to really understand pop culture in your country. So basketball, which was not big in the UK, was huge here. I understood basketball, hip-hop, big parts of what Sprite was doing to connect with, like, influencer youth in America, I had to learn. And then... The phrase I use is you. You kind of become part of pop culture. If you make brands part of pop culture, you can. That's when your brand starts to explode. So I think I think sometimes you have to. You always have to be a student of the game. So wherever you go, uh, one don't go in with a sense of entitlement, and two always be a student of the game. And you're always learning. I'm still learning today. Mm. So I think you healed. you've stopped learning. Your toast.
1: So you mentioned Sprite then, and. About how you had to understand American culture, um you managed to make it become the number one brand among young African Americans. You don't need to like share your secret behind your success from it, but what was your strategy focused on, and how did you get it to that that level of prominence?
2: Very interesting, I actually didn't do it. I learned from people who did it, and then I participated in it, and that's the big part of having mentors so um you know, one of my mentors, a guy called Daryl Corbin, who really was, to me, live, lived the culture and understood it. Another one was a guy called Andrew Springgate, who was my first boss at Coke, now actually heads up Keurig Dr. Pepper Marketing. And from those guys, I learned um, how to create that brand cultural sizzle, how to pick the right athletes. Because, you know, we chose actually Kobe Bryant right out of high school and Tim Duncan in an ad with a woman called Missy Elliott. Was a degree of pop culture fusion. I learned from my mentors. I learned from the agencies we hired. So I understood the strategy. And so the first two years, I just spent learning from that. And then I added my own flavor, right? Once I understood it, uh, then I'm like, okay, you got to keep, you got to pick the right talent. One of the campaigns we did was was basically riffing off, I don't remember Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. It's a famous movie that came out back in the day. And so we did a whole campaign that riffed off that, which was never done on TV before. And we used a guy who went on to become one of Hollywood's biggest directors, but at the time he wasn't. So choosing the right talent all the way through from the advertising agency to the director, to the artists themselves, is all part of people know when you pick the right stuff, right? Versus when you just take someone cheesy who's big, slap it on a box or slap it on a a can and go from there. So I learned for the first two years, you always got to do. And then I added my own masala, as we say, onto the mix.
0: (laughs) I think one thing, so a lot of our listeners might be going to grad jobs and things like that. And you mentioned after, you know, you learn for two years, learn for however long from your seniors. But once you have your own ideas, did you ever find that your initiatives and your kind of thought on what direction it should go on clashed with their kind of thoughts and their direction? And how did you deal with Uh, potentially like different struggles of ideas within that?
2: Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, In the early days, it depends who I was dealing with. I was very good when I dealt with people who got it. And if I presented an idea that was good, they completely got it and I'd run with it. If it wasn't good, that kind of explained to me why. The tough part is when you deal with people who are not that smart and you still have to sell your ideas. And I was a little too cocky back then. I've learned with time now that you really have to sell your ideas. At some point, you're always selling, unless you completely own the company. And even then, you're still selling to your team. You're still selling to your customers. You're still selling to your entrepreneurs. So I think you've got to sell the vision of your idea and sell your benefits. And you've got to start looking at it. The sooner you can look at it from other people's perspective, the better off you are. When you're younger, you don't. It's just your perspective. So it's probably why I got fired again, because I was just too cocky and I dealt with people who just couldn't see the ideas I was presenting. And so I just did them anyway. Uh, Now, the ideas were great. But if you do ideas that that maybe your boss is not agreeing with, um, that's a surefire way to get fired, even if the (laughs) ideas are good. Because there's (laughs) some politics that comes into play. And that's when the rubber meets the road, unfortunately, in corporate America.
0: I can imagine. Well, before we talk about you moving on from Coca-Cola, I wanted to touch on your work with Powerade because I don't know if many people in the UK will know, but it's a sports drink and uh, it's obviously owned by Coca-Cola. And it was, um, I would say it was a much smaller brand than Sprite at the time. So you learned your trade on Sprite and then you managed to implement your ideas onto Powerade and actually take it to one of the bigger brands in the US from quite a small brand within Coca-Cola. Can you talk to us about how you kind of transitioned onto something small?
2: So on Sprite, I wasn't the only guy. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, there was other people. There was there were mentors that I had. So when I got the chance to take over Powerade, that I did run with a really good team. And the beauty is the brand was tanking. Like, it was declining. Uh, so sometimes, uh, these days, I, I don't choose brands. I only charge choose brands that I can turbocharge. But back then, it was an interesting challenge. It's like, okay, well, how can we turn this bad boy around? You've got an amazing company in Coca-Cola with the power of distribution, the power of customers, yet the brand is struggling because Gatorade was just kicking its ass. Um, how do you how do you resurrect the brand? And so that was probably why I learned the most before going on to the entrepreneurial world because I ended up having full license, Cause no one really cared. Mm. Like it was, you know, it was a lame duck. It was like, Oh, how how much damage can him, him and his team really do. And we did everything. We revamped the marketing. We revamped the packaging product, uh, formulations. Uh, we, instead of picking B list talent and B list assets, we started going A list talent. So, you know, whether it's LeBron James or, um, at the time it was, uh, Andy Roddick, Michael Vick before the Dogs was the number one you know, number one uh, NFL quarterback back then. We chose A-list talent. Uh, we entered action sports and suddenly Powerade had a turnaround. And what happened was, is Coke has the most powerful distribution network in the world. But the key is you've got to inspire them. Part of all of what, what you have to do, a lot of the times in my world, you have to inspire people. So the distribution and bottling network for Coca-Cola had lost faith in the brand. So they didn't really, when they go out in the morning. You, these guys are on the street every day, filling shelves, loading stores up. They're going to feel motivated for selling a brand. And if your brand is flat, the motivation is not there. So I helped with my team create a brand sizzle that these guys go, you know what? Yeah, I'm backing this. And suddenly Rate, which was below 10% market share, started having 30% growth rates, ended up almost doubling its market share. And that's kind of what landed me in magazines. And I mean, I'm talking about like boring magazines, not fancy magazines, <laughs> like Ad Age and Brand Week and stuff like that, which is where the founders of Vitamin Water found me and said, hey, you want to come over here?
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, one thing I'm quite curious about is how did you convince those A-list celebrities and sports stars to work on a brand which was quite low at the time? I mean, Gateway could have easily pinched them and say, oh, it's a bigger brand, more market share. You know, how did you convince them to join on, on, your, um,
2: on your wave? Again, part of it is selling the story, right? Gatorade had a ton of athletes and whoever joined Gatorade was going to be in either Michael's shadow or someone's shadow. Mm-hmm. Whereas here's an advantage where you can take something that's different and unique. And also the campaign was very cool. It was almost like viral before there was viral. So Andy Roddick served the ball and he had the fastest serve in tennis and it stuck in the clay. And, and it was shot a little bit um, like on a handy cam. And so, so if I'd done that today, that thing, or well, five years ago, it would have gone viral like you wouldn't believe. Because it was the people like, did that really happen? Because it could happen. And then Michael threw the football out of the stadium because he had the most powerful arm in football. But, did that really happen? And, you know, LeBron James made like a 100-foot a shot just like on the fly. But LeBron could do that. So suddenly – there was a cultural element to the campaign that was pretty cool. Even basic, we had one where these guys were kayaking on a boat and a whale comes out and just plants on these guys. But it was so shot, it was shot so well, Like that really happened? Now you see all that and it's fake news straight away. But back then it was like, that's pretty cool. So you always have to sell people on on the idea and ideas will always win. So if you can sell them on a good idea and a good campaign and being part of something disruptive and different, you can get people on board.
0: That is really fascinating. Uh, so let's why don't we pivot to probably one of your biggest parts of your career uh, when you worked with Vitamin Water and Smart Water. Uh, you mentioned how your work with Parade got you in the eye of those people at Vitamin Water to try and take a small brand big. Can you tell us your what you were thinking when you left Coca Cola, one of the biggest brands in the world, and you came to quite a small up and coming. A brand in a really saturated market and mind you there was lots of still drinks uh, being heavily promoted by by large companies then
2: um well a few things one remember i said to you that i was not so mature in my early days where yes yeah,
0: so you did get yeah, yeah. Fired, so yeah i was
2: about to get fired so i thought look here it's better to leap before you're fully kicked <laughs> so i think the day before i was going to get fired i resigned and so that was one component. The second component was I believed in the brand, Vitam Water. I used it. I didn't drink any of the products of Coke at the time. Um, Vitam Water today probably has too much sugar for me. From back then, it was half the sugar of sodas, half the sugar of sports drinks. And so I think that, from my perspective, it was um, – it was it, I have to uh, – I believe in brand messiahs, not brand managers. And so brand messiahs who actually believe in the product – use the product, live and breathe by it. So when I started drinking it and I was part of the movement with Vitam Water and then even Smart Water, I thought, you know, I love this product. I believe in the product. I'm going to get fired from Coke. And if I'm going to take an entrepreneurial leap, now's the time to do it. Because when you start getting older and you have kids and you're married and so on, so, to take the leap from a stable, solid job into an entrepreneurial company where it could fail, it could not, becomes a little more scary. So I think I was twenty, was 28, 29 when I'm like, okay, let me do this while I'm 30 and jump. It worked out okay.
0: So I think one of the interesting things with your work with Vitamin Water and Smart Water and that whole brand was the fact that you managed to take what worked at Coca-Cola and make it really work for such a a smaller brand with much big, less financial pull and much less clout, I guess is the the modern term for it. Um, so can you talk to us about how you you employed the same techniques from Coca-Cola or different, actually, whatever new things you came up with and really built up a bit of buzz, as you mentioned, about about the brand of vitamin water?
2: So a few things. One is I took some of the learnings from Powerade for sure. But the difference is Powerade was a declining brand that had to turn around, and vitamin water already have a, or had a degree of sizzle to it. The question is how do you turbocharge it? So a lot of it bought out of people. We hired so c- corporate America doesn't have the culture that entrepreneurial companies have. Entrepreneurial companies have a very sort of distinct or good ones, desire to win, supreme belief in the brand, believe they're creating the products of tomorrow. People managing a lot of brands in corporate America today manage those brands well, but recognize those are the usual mo- most of the time brands of yesterday. And so the, the team culture is super important. So that was one, was we we hired brand messiahs. So one of the phrases we had was be the brand. So everyone, ha- I don't care which department you worked in, you could be in the mailroom, sales, marketing, everyone had to be the brand. It wasn't just a marketing thing. Second, we hired people in local markets who were cool in those markets. DJs, outdoor athletes, um, you know, influencers in those markets. Because again, one in 10 Americans, same in the UK, one in 10 Brits, influence the other nine. The key is to find that one in 10 because you only have limited dollars. And I'm not running a Super Bowl commercial and I don't have, you know, infinite amount of money to spend. So the second part is how do you find those influences? You recruit the people who identify the influences. And then I think what we did was given the limited budget, we had a lot of creativity. So you're forced to exercise creativity because your budget's low which means your ad campaigns have to become cooler and more talked about. You don't light fires across the country. You light mini fires in influencer markets. So we did it in New York, LA, San Francisco, Chicago, Miami. So suddenly all the influencer sets were like, oh wow, this is a cool brand. You're seeing in the right spots. And then those mini fires become an inferno. And also then I think I signed a deal with uh, an African-American gentleman called Curtis Jackson And I didn't have the money. And I told, I told Fifth, I said, look, dude, I I don't have the money to pay you, but I can give you equity and give him credit. He really, in my opinion, pioneered the equity movement. And now every celebrity wants skin in the game, but Fifth's like, all right, I believe in myself. Give me skin in the game. And I gave him skin in the game. And then he claims he made me a slumdog billionaire. That's, that's, (laughs) (laughs) that's, 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 um, but the big difference was 50 took the brand on his back. And he said he was the owner of Vitamin Water. Ironically, the real founder of Vitam Water, Darius, let him do that because Darius understood the bigger picture. Because he was like, you know what? I know I'm the real owner, but from a consumer standpoint, Fifth was an owner. He had equity. Let him go out there and build my brand, and he did. And Fifth went out, built it, made a lot of money himself in the process. But that, when all those things came together, were the influences, the pop culture, the creativity of the marketing, the sales and distribution, getting into the right accounts. In the right cities, and then you put on top of that the turbo charging of Fifty Cent, the brand took off.
1: Fifty Cent comes across as a very intelligent person who's been able to like adapt his brand based on the different audiences, as can be seen by like his Instagram today, yeah which seems to be influenced by like Six Nine. One thing I'm interested in, firstly, what was it like to work with him, and what was his understanding of business like back then? <laughs>
2: I was surprised because I think back then Fifth was probably... Now he's got a more rounded approach, right? Now he's TV producer, actor, musician, businessman. Back then he was just huge music star, right? In the club would just come out. It was... Yeah. Fifth was one of the biggest... It was Fifth and Jay-Z were the two biggest stars on the planet. And I, I, actually at the time I wasn't sure who I wanted Fifth or Jay-Z. And my buddy Seth actually knew 5th didn't know Jay. Now he does know Jay. But... Uh, so I chose fifth. It was pretty. But when I met with him, he was he he understood the market landscape really well. I wasn't dealing with a rapper that knew music and just didn't care. He, he was always, always, always focused on business. And so um, right from he wanted to be involved in choosing the flavors, he wanted to be involved in naming his Formula 50, uh, and he wanted to be involved in how to market the brand. So as it related to him, not the whole marketing, but anything. So he was very conscious about his brand and vitamin water. And he saw that if he put his, his juice on it. And I think a lot of also the credit goes to 50s manager at the time. He's unfortunately passed away since, but a guy called Chris Lighty, but it's a lot of the time for artists who manages the artist and the manager understanding it is critical to the artist's success. And, And Chris got it. Lighty got it. He, um, uh, he influenced Fifth in a big way, I think, from the business standpoint. And Fifth himself gets it. And so I think the combination factor meant we worked really well together as a team. Um, and every time I meet him now, he's, you know, he's idea after idea. So, I mean, he's, I, I even spoke, I, was, I spoke for five years ago, I think. And I said, just, you know, isn't time for you to do your music? He goes, I can do music, but I'm telling you, TV is going to be bigger than me. I'm like, what is he talking about? He's not have a <laughs> show. He's just bringing the show out called Power. I don't know how big it's going to be. Ends up becoming the biggest show on stars. Puts him in a whole different platform. He's now a producer and he's an actor. So he clearly he, he sees shit further out, or at least he manifests it. So I give him a lot of credit for that.
0: That's really interesting to see someone have someone from one industry have such a vision for others. Um, you've worked with lots of celebrities, you know, during your time at Vitamin Water, Coke. Afterwards, one thing I'm really interested in is. How interested and invested do the celebrities get with the product you, do you get them to advertise? Because obviously 50 Cent wanted to be in with the flavors and everything like that. Did you find it more difficult to get other celebrities to really engage as well as he did?
2: Um, I only chose celebrities generally who really felt or believed in the brand. So on Smartwater, we spent a lot of time deciding who the right person was, and we chose Jennifer Anderson in the end. And Jennifer was an incredible ambassador of the brand. I think she was a partner on the brand for uh, almost 15 years, close to 15 years, which is um, which is really amazing for one particular. But also, she doesn't age, so it's also useful. Right, so at you know 35 and 50, she looks like she's aged about three years. Um, but I think that we chose Jennifer because Jennifer hadn't done anything herself from an endorsement standpoint. And she believed she was drinking smart water anyway. She loved the brand. She loved the packaging. She uses a shield against the paparazzi. Um, so when we saw that, we're like, you know what? She's the right fit. And Jennifer, as, as engaged as 50, she was even more engaged on who to choose when it came to the content, like which photographer, the type of shoot, the campaign that did and did not work for her. So she was also very focused, but it, it she lit the brand up. Smart water, we laid the base again, influencers with the Oscars, Golden Globes, Aspen, Sundance Film Festival, all the high-end events at Smartwater, But Jennifer became the the sort of catalyst that lit the brand up. But she was also very engaged with it. That's
0: great. I think one thing that I'm quite curious about is obviously um, Smartwater, Vitamin Water was a brand, and I believe the company who owned it was Glesso. I might be That's saying that so, wrong. Yeah. Um, but you obviously had experience at a, one of the biggest in Coca-Cola. So, how did you help the company grow in a manageable way? Because obviously something that's quite difficult for some brands is if they grow too quickly, they might struggle and, and in the end actually falter because of how big they've grown. So how did you help manage that? And when it got to as big as it was before it was bought by Coca-Cola, how did you kind of help the, the company manage growth?
2: Well, I was also learning at that point, right? So the founder is a guy called Darius who had a crystal clear vision. And he had a vision of a billion dollar brand. Before we were, I thought he was crazy. I'm like, I this guy have a vision for a billion dollar brand? We're doing 20 million. So that's the advantage of working with guys who have vision, right? He, and it's, it, you, you can learn from that to become, you can't become a visionary, but you can learn from that to have better vision, put it that way. Um, the President of the company was also a brilliant guy, a guy called Mike Rapoli. And Mike, really, what I learned from him is how to take a brand to market because you don't take the brand everywhere. That's what Coca-Cola does because they can do it. But to build a brand that's new, you really need to light up uh, the right cities with the right distribu- distribution partners. And that's what I learned from Mike. And I also learned the importance of the company culture part because he drove a lot of the DNA. So he and I became a great tag team, like Ying Yang. And so he was like an older brother. We fought, We, uh, but we learned a lot from each other. And I think he learned marketing and branding from me. And so. We kind of together created the momentum that was steady growth in the right markets with a lot of marketing sizzle that goes with it and basically made vitamin and smart both part of pop culture. But you don't have to compete with the, Coca-Cola's of the world by going everywhere. You just got to compete with them in the right markets in the right way. And once you have build the momentum, you can then spread further. But I think you've got to create a heat index for your brand with either the right customers and or the right markets, and then you need to make sure that the brands turn because you're feeding that beast with a lot of excitement. So I think it was a combination. I think we I call it a very well paid MBA. It was like my second MBA, and I just happened to make some good money doing it. But I was learning all, along the way, and actually, my team uh, we we're all learning together. Like you know, Mike and I provide a lot of the inspiration, but we were learning a lot from the team as well because they. You know, there was a culture at Vitamin Water that was almost second to none. Like people already charged the mountain with you, which doesn't happen in corporate America.
0: It sounds like a really exciting place to work, and I think that's why a lot of people are are interested in entrepreneurial. Uh, yeah, well, you know, new, it's also business ironic.
2: Business. Someone should write a book. But Vitamin Water then went on to Spark. Um, it was like a mafia, where when everyone left the company, they went on to become part of some incredible brands in America. Like if you look at the list of brands, not just that I'm involved in or Mike's involved in. But the team went on to run, manage, lead sales, lead marketing, become CEOs of some pretty big companies um, across the States. It was pretty impressive. Someone should really create uh, an organizational framework. But yeah, they were part of some really a lot of the uh, entrepreneurial movement in food and beverage in the States. That's fascinating.
0: And uh, it seems like a very exciting period of your career. Before I move on to what happened after Vitamin Water, I have to ask, uh, Vitamin Water is really well known for their catchy, flashy sayings on the on the labels. Yeah. How much did you, how did you even think about that? How much was that your idea? And just tell us how that came about because that's it's fascinating.
2: Well, I think part of that um, was, and it started before I got there. So it was a combination of um, Darius and Mike at the beginning. And then a lot of the voice became actually me and Mike so that we didn't write it, the team wrote it, but we were very, we had a sense because Mike had a personality and so did I. And so we'd debate about the labels, but we, we kind of knew it when we felt it, you know? Uh, And so the personality uh, was a big part of it. Now, now if you read them today, it's a little forced because you don't have the people who really created it doing it. So I learned from Darius and learned from Mike, and then I put my own spin on it. And so we ended up with some really funny, cool ones. Um, and the best one was actually Triple XXX, uh, which had Paris at the time. Uh, and then I had to get permission in Paris, and actually now we're friends. It's bizarre. Um bizarre. Uh, so it, but we pushed the envelope on creativity because the number one thing people saw was the labels, right? Everybody who grabs a bottle will see a label. Not everyone's going to see your ad campaign or see your marketing or see what, it, but you will see the label. So the label became a very big part of the storytelling and people liked it. If you you know delivered, it was just, and you know, I, for, for a dollar or $2, I get a beverage, I get vitamins and I get a laugh. I'll take it.
0: I think that's it's so true. Cause one of the things that personally I remember most about Vitamin water is their sayings and, or, the, you know, it, it made it so much more appealing to drink in comparison to just a, a normal, um, normal label. So, um, now, I guess we can talk about a really important moment with Vitamin Water Smart Water, it being bought out by Coca-Cola. Um, and one thing I'm curious about is kind of how satisfi- satisfying, gratifying a moment was when Coca-Cola came back to you, the company you left or were about to be fired by, came back and bought the brand that you built with that amazing team.
2: Yeah, well, I would have build it myself, but yeah. Um, so I reached out to Coke, and the deal was really negotiated by Darius. And again, give him a lot of credit. I mean, he literally had the confidence and audacity to say the number starts with the fall. And I thought he was crazy And I'm like, dude, I'll take two billion, you know? <laughs> and he painted a Picasso. I give it to him. And the brand was incredible. Smartwater was had a lot of potential as well. And Coke could take it global because of what we'd done. So uh, Darius pretty much negotiated the deal without bankers and so I rode that train for sure um, in terms of the deal part of it and uh, when Coke bought it, it was, it was fun because I had a lot of friends at Coca-Cola still so people who liked me were like, great, Rose back people didn't like this, oh that jackass is back and he made money, <laughs> it's even worse but, um, but I had a lot of friends back at Coke and I think you know a lot of people at Coke wanted to bring a degree of Energy and excitement to their brands, and they want to push the envelope. And I think that just the construct of corporate America makes it difficult to do that. But the people themselves don't want to be in a most of them, not everyone. Most of them don't want to be in a stodgy job. They want to push the envelope. They want to win. But sometimes when a lot of your ideas get knocked down, the wind gets taken out of your sails a little. Bit. So, but it was great to go back. It was um, it was a fun piece. I stayed out uh, hung out for a couple of years, and then I started doing my own stuff from a venture capital standpoint before I formed Carvu with my now business partner, Brett Thomas.
1: The move back to Coke compared to Visman Water, which is a very exciting, like up and coming brand. How, how did the two jobs compare from a marketing perspective? Was it more limited what you could do with Coke given the brands like history?
2: Uh, I got a lot of license on, on, on Powerade, mm. but probably cause no one cared. You know, Coke, the brands I was on to be fair, and I think maybe it was the bosses that I had, Gave a lot of more air cover and are willing to push the envelope. When I was there, there was a lot of license on both Sprite and Powerade. But nothing, but there's no, and Coke is a safety net. You still, the brand's going to do okay. Was it vitamin water or small water? There's no safety net. Like if I make a move or my team makes a move or the sales makes a move that's incorrect, you feel it very rapidly. So I think that there's a, there's a you have a lot more license as an entrepreneurial brand, but you also have a lot, lot further to fall because there's no safety net.
0: Sure I think one thing that is really interesting for me is the fact that you kind of you, you you knew you wanted to move into your own thing and that comes from all your experiences and things like that. So when you left Coke as you mentioned a couple of years later after coming back um, what what direction did you see yourself going? Did you want to start uh, focus on bringing smaller brands up or were you tempted to go to another big brand in a different industry? No never. Once
2: you get fired a couple of times, you're like, okay, that shit ain't for me. You decide. To <laughs> and so I love entrepreneur brands. I love working with smart founders. I'm not smart enough to have found anything myself, unfortunately, but I'm able to find smart founders early. So whether it's Coco, a guy called Mike Curbin, you know, took a took a brand from 44 million when I became part of it and he built it up to 400 it's pretty, on a coconut water, which is pretty impressive. Or Ben Weiss, when, when I got involved with Ben, by was doing a million bucks and you know, in five five years, you know, we got it up to almost 300. And Ben, again, Ben also painted a great vision, uh, created an incredible culture in the company. Everyone wore dog tags with their actual case number goal for the year. So you you never forgot your number. Uh, give him credit. He created like, um, you know, he, um, every year there was an award ceremony for the best performers. It was called the Civet Society because Civets are the ones who eat the coffee bean we eat the coffee fruit, and the coffee fruit was the, was used in the antioxidants. There's a whole story, a mythology behind the brand, and he created a culture. People were willing to charge the mountain with him, and so I think that you know I found really smart founders, and I bonded with them. I became the conciliary to those founders, and then we went on to pre- create some pretty incredible brands. I mean, you had a couple of losses in the way, but mainly wins. You got to learn from your losses, um, and then I formed Carvu with Brett.
0: That's, I think that's fascinating. Now, one thing, obviously you don't need to mention all of them, but is there anything that any brands or any people that you met that you, they present an idea to you and you just didn't buy at the time, but now looking back, you kind of felt, oh, I've missed out on that, or I just underestimated that.
2: So many of those. Um, what are the few, one, um, I presented the entire organization of Airbnb, a small company at the time. And one of the founders was a friend of mine and I was supposed to invest, usually I invest and I get equity, but you know, the CEO's brilliant chap basically said you can invest buddy, but I can't give you equity because you know, it's too precious. And I think in my, my mind, I was, um, I wasn't smart enough to realize the potential or either that or I was too cocky, one of the two. And so I should have invested because it would have been a, I don't know, 200 x return. So, um, I gave up a lot of money because I didn't see the clear vision. And the other one that I have invested now, but I saw it much earlier, is an incredible product called Oatly. Uh, best best uh, plant-based milk on the market. And a friend of mine the largest shareholder. He was in there early. I saw it and I'm like, how big can this really be? Apparently it can be really big. <laughs> and so, you know, I've definitely had my fair share of, damn, how did I miss that? So. And you know, you've got to learn from it. you got to learn to see what did you miss? How did you approach it? Were you too cocky about it? Were you not insightful enough? Did you not seek other people's opinions, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. So that's, that's, I think, where I, um, uh, I've learned from some mistakes, where I think sometimes if you decide to go solo or you're a little overly confident because you think you know the industry, you can miss big opportunities out there.
1: To anyone listening who likes coffee, put some Oatly in it because it's delicious. That's my personal recommendation.
2: Yeah, I just had it today. I had a, and let him with Oakley and I'm like, <laughs> at least I got in, I got in recently, but I'm still in the deal, but it could have gotten way earlier. But hey, anyway, you live and learn.
1: <laughs> what do you, what do you look for when, so when someone's presenting a business idea to you, what do you look for in terms of them as an individual and in oh, terms yeah. of their actual business?
2: I look for the, um, I look for the leadership, passion, and um, it factor of the founder, Mm. right? It's a combination of IQ and EQ, there's different ranges. Some are super smart, uh, but have good people around them that can help lead. Some uh, just have a street intelligence, but have a great EQ, like emotional quotient, how to lead and manage people. So it really starts with the founder. You've got to have a connective tissue, also, are they willing to listen a little bit? Do they want to have it their way or the highway? And they will listen to it? but they've got to have a real opinion. You don't want founder to just swing with the wind, but you also want someone who will listen a little bit. So it starts with the founder. And then I, a lot of it to me boils down to is a product of a reason for being. Like why the hell are you creating it? You know, if it's the seventh oat milk to market, I mean, what's the point? Oatly dominates the market. Give me something unique and different. You know, you can you can be number one, number two, sometimes even number three, but Generally, you want one and two, and you've got to have a reason for being. Whether it's buy had the reason for being, right? Kombucha has a reason. It's you know five six grams of sugar per serving versus thirty grams of sugar per serving. It's got probiotics to help gut health. It's like it's a real reason to be. So you want to be the number one, number two kombucha. You don't want to be the number seven kombucha. Um, so that's so that's part of that. And then I think the last piece is, which can be fixed if I've got a great product. What does the package look like? And before I really turn on jets, do we need to revamp the product? So there's a there's an apple cider vinegar beverage that I got on Shark Tank. And I love the product, I love the founders. So check two boxes, founders check, product check. Packaging was horrible. So I took the packaging and my team revamped the whole thing, named the brand Poppy, and it is taking off now.
0: That's a great segue into one of the most interesting bits for me. Uh, so for people listening who don't know, Mr. Oza is currently a shark on Shark Tank and that is the US version of Dragon's Den. So I wanted to talk to you a bit. How, how did that opportunity come up and what was your thoughts going into it? Did you really expect much from the from people coming on the show?
2: Well, I, I, one, I was a little nervous going on to it because, you know, you've got seasoned sharks on there. who have been doing it for a long time um, and you've got to, this is, your, this is my own money that I'm investing. So I'm not throwing stuff away here. And I don't have Cubans money, so I need to be like really focused on what I'm investing. You got a combination. Listen to the founders, decide whether you want to invest, fight off the other shops if it's a good deal, oh, and make good TV at the same time. It's, uh, it's a lot of juggling and, and it's intense because um, we have to basically um, we have to basically go nonstop because you shoot. The forty-minute or fifty-minute pitch gets knocked down to an eight-minute or four-five minute. But you're on. You then get a three-minute break, and then you're back on again, and you do this for between eight and ten hours. Obviously, the crew's also, you know, slammed as well. But like your brain's got to be on. You can't check. I can't just check out. You know, I'm going to pass on this one because the camera's on you the whole time. So your brain's got to be fully on. So it was an amazing experience. Um, obviously, I bonded with the other sharks, who are fantastic both businessmen and women and also uh you know great tv personalities but it was an incredible experience but it was tough it was it's not easy um you go on there to do it so yeah. i after a while i started getting better and had more of a cadence but uh but yeah sometimes when you start when you're not on they have you in the ear they're like get in the game that's
0: that's very interesting it- can you tell us, is there any ideas? You mentioned that uh, apple cider vinegar drink. Is there any ideas you've had on Shark Tank which just blown you away and you thought, wow, this is something I have to get into?
2: Uh, the top two, one was Everly Well, which was a uh, at-home testing kit. And I love the founder. She was brilliant. I should have done that deal. But I was in something else already that was very similar. So I didn't do that. Uh, Lori did it, and I love Laurie a lot. She was smart, probably one of her best deals. And then the the apple cider vinegar poppy, I think that I think that's got a lot of potential. Um, you know, it'll do probably in its second full year, it'll probably do fifteen million bucks, which is not bad. Wow. You know, second year out twenty million, second year out the gate. So
0: that's that's crazy and I think there's a lot of people listening who might have just an idea in their head about something which they feel, you know what could really make a difference, could become quite big. So, as you've met lots of these, uh, you know, entrepreneurs who are just starting out, coming onto a show like Shark Tank, do you have any advice for for listeners who are really just trying to start out and make something of, of their idea?
2: Well, I think one, you've got to have a real uh, a real idea. So, don't make sure it's not a me too. Or if it's a me too, make it a really quick me too. So, you got Uber in the country you're in, right? So, you have got Uber, you have got Lyft. Anything after Lyft is toast. You have got the top two now. You could be the same rideshare app in the UK or India, India at Ola, and created it, and the guy was, you know, you don't have, to. in your own country, you can you can be the me too to somebody develop somewhere else, but you better be the me one uh, in that market you're going into, right? So that's, that's one component, so one, have a real idea, or be a fast follower. Second, have a lot of belief in it, and belief means you gotta put your own money friends and family money because you don't want to lose friends and family. When you're putting that in, you're like, okay, I believe in this. And then seek really strong advisors. They're not going to show you how to get to the promised land, but they will show you some pitfalls along the way and they will coach you and where you can make mistakes. The dream and the vision has to be yours, but seek some smart advisors around you to help navigate you through the turbulence. Awesome.
1: So we always end the podcast on one final question, which is, from your experience, are there any specific traits or behaviours which you think like help distinguish a successful individual?
2: I think it varies a lot. I think it depends what you're in. There's a few things. Um, most successful founders, really successful, have a crystal clear vision. So I think that have that vision, never deviate from that vision, but be willing to change your game plan to get there Mm. because you may not have the right game plan. Like if your vision is to win the FA Cup, different teams will come along the way and you may have to change your game plan, but your vision remains the same. I think the other thing is most people that become very successful have an ability to motivate and lead people. And there's different ways to do it. You can do it in a rah-rah fashion. You can do it quiet quiet confidence. You can do it with intellect. You can do it with inspiration or perspiration depends how you want to, push people, but I think inspiring people is critical to that thing. Um, and I think the last part is people, successful people, um, have to be willing to take the risk and go all in. Like I've had conversations with with certain people like, yeah, I'm creating this company. I'm like, well, what else do you do? Oh, and i got a full-time job on the side, but I'm, you know, but I'm like, no, no, pick a lane. Is your lane the entrepreneurial idea or is your lane your full-time job? Because if you're hedging on those fronts, people who are really successful go all in. They put their life savings in there. They they believe in what they're doing. They have single-minded focus. And those end up being the winners.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. Well, thank you very much, Rohan, for coming on the podcast. Nice and uh, thank you for all listeners. Um, thanks very much for listening, guys. Bye-bye.